Welcome to episode five of My Badass Friends. This is Paul McClintock. I am excited about this episode. It's as we started this journey, it's an episode that I never thought we would do. But as we got going, my guest today said she would love to be a badass friend of mine, at least for the afternoon. So my guest today is my wife, Nikki McClintock, Nicole. How are you, Nikki? Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited. Um, little context, Nikki is the mother of my two children. We've been married a little over 20 years. And um, as I said, today, she's my badass friend. We met in uh, in the early 2000s. And I think one of my biggest struggles has been that all my friends would rather be your friend. And so I think as we move through today, people will find out why. So I'm going to modify my opening question um, a tiny bit. And so uh, Nikki, let's start with where are you from and where are your parents from? I am from Los Angeles. I was born in Inglewood and I was raised for most of my life in Hacienda Heights. My parents immigrated in 1968 from Indonesia. My parents came from two smaller towns in Indonesia and they decided that the United States was the place for them. And so they came to Los Angeles under the sponsorship of a young priest in the Inglewood area, whom they kept in touch with until he passed away, I think, when I was four or five. So um, expand a little bit. You said small town. So give us some context. What are these places like? So my mom is from the larger town. It's called Banyumas. It is outside of Jakarta. And they had indoor plumbing, but a lot of this, the town around it had open sewers. It's, it's a third world country. My dad grew up in a very, very small town called Tagal. And his family ran a little tiny shop where they would sell anything from food to groceries to personal items. So I mainly asked that question because I'm from kind of a small town in America, but obviously these are, I mean, these are rough places where they're from. So what, what, um, give us some context about why they decided to leave, why their fam, why, why did that all happen? So my father's family immigrated to Indonesia when Mao took over China and they wanted a place that wasn't communist. So they immigrated to Indonesia and my father was born in Indonesia and he went to a Chinese school as well as Indonesian schools. As he was growing up in Indonesia, there was a lot of racism against the Chinese by the native Indonesians, which he felt. And as for my mom, her family had been in Indonesia for, I think, several generations. Historically, my mom is also Chinese, but there is Indonesian blood in the family. No one is sure exactly where or when it first started. But if you were to look at my mom, I'm not sure that you would immediately recognize that she's Chinese. Some people have told me that she, they know that she's from the Pacific region, but they wouldn't necessarily say that she's Chinese, whereas my dad very much looks Chinese. Okay. And so set the timing. They, you, you said they found sponsorship. 
but what led to that? How old were they? And I'm sure they each have their own story. So my mom and dad knew they wanted to come to America because it is the land of opportunity. And they knew that they could establish a life here and do what they wanted in terms of profession and not have this overbearing racism that's really prevalent in Indonesia, or at least it was at the time. So they sought sponsorship. They did not want to come to the United States illegally. So at that time, you had to have somebody who would vouch for you, who would say, yes, these people are great. They're law-abiding citizens. They're going to be contributing members of society. They can come. And so this priest happened to be the one who did that for my parents. And they settled in Inglewood. They were 26, I believe, and 36. My mom was 26. My dad was 36. And they had just gotten married, I think, a year or two before. And so what did uh, what did your father do back in Indonesia before coming here? My father was a mechanical engineer by trade. And he found that same profession here. And your mom, was she working? My mom was working. She was trained really as a pharmacist, but the Indonesian government would not certify her certificate when she came to the United States because she was Chinese. So my mom found a job in a lab and she became a medical technologist. And so they came to Inglewood, which is the home of the Los Angeles Lakers, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's where you were technically born. I was born in Inglewood at the Daniel Freeman Hospital. Okay. And then um, they moved east. But what did they, and again, this is not about your parents, it's about you, but what did they think of Los Angeles coming from places like they came from? They thought Los Angeles was amazing. It really was not the urban, crowded sprawl that you see today in 2024. There were pockets of communities. Uh, Inglewood, at the time that they moved into it, was not considered an entirely African-American neighborhood. There were races of all kinds trying to make it here in America. And they really moved east because my mom's sister, who had immigrated years before, had established a house out in Hacienda Heights and family is super important to my parents and to me. And she wanted to be close to her sister. So they moved in next door. Literally next door. Literally next door. And they live next door to each other for how long? They live next door to each other for probably 50 years until my aunt passed away. I think it was three years ago. And, um, I'm a, a lot of these questions, part of why I'm excited to have this conversation is because I don't know the answers to a lot of these questions, but I'm assuming, um, I know your mom came with her, or at least her sisters came as well. Who did your mom and dad leave behind? My mom's sisters all ended up coming here. She is one of four. So her older sister came first, then my mom. Then when I was, I think, 10, her younger sister came, and then subsequent to that, her youngest sister came. I'm not sure of the timeline on that, but all four of her sisters ended up coming to the United States. 
the last two stayed with us for some period of time when I was growing up and then they made their own way. So I know, I know both your parents. Well, I love them both. They're, they're fantastic people. They, I also know that they love this country and what it stands for. Did that, did that start to be instilled in you or did you absorb that at a young age? Oh, of course. I mean, my parents have always said that the United States is the best place to live. And people who don't recognize that should leave. And I, 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 I'm looking at you so I can see a little bit of emotion on your face, but it's a, it's, as I've gotten to know them, it's been a great additional perspective for me to think about what it's like to not be born here, come here the right way and, and then prosper and build an an amazing life. Um, And, and fast forward all the way to them now, basically living with their grandkids, which is really cool. So, so let's get to you. What are your earliest memories my earliest memory is playing with my little cousins in our respective backyards i had two cousins they were both boys and we would play together all the time because both my parents worked and my aunt was kind of the keeper of the latchkey kid who was me So we would always be playing in the yard, whether it was building mud tree houses or playing football with a Nerf football in the yard. And I also have early memories of my dad taking me to the local park and riding my bike around the local park. So I'm sure that's a, your your dad is 91 as we sit here today. Yes, he is still going strong. But if I were interviewing him, I'm assuming that leaving the kind of place that he left, which was tough, and he had a lot of tough memories, and then fast forward to a park in America watching his little girl probably with pigtails riding around a park, that's got to be pretty special. Oh, he loved it. He loved it. He used to film on those old handheld films of me riding my bike and running across the park. We still have those films somewhere in our yeah, house. We'll, uh, I haven't seen those. So that's definitely going to be one takeaway is to, is to dig those up. Um, do, do you have memories of, of things being hard for them building a new life here? I don't have memories of things being hard in terms of lack of food or lack of heat in that sense. They were very successful in their own right. There was always plenty of food on the table. I went to a private elementary school, but money was a factor. There were things that my younger friends had and I would ask for them and they would say, we don't have the money for that. But I was not necessarily in a want for anything that was needed. It was just... Maybe if someone had the newest toy, I would ask for it and they would say, no, we don't, we don't have the money for that. So how often do you think back to times where you, you were told no, because, because you didn't have the money? Often, but it would almost be like a delayed gratification, so to speak. Like they would say no for something if it was the newest toy if that was in May or June, but come Christmas, 
Christmas is always a wonderful time and they spoiled me crazy. Okay. Good news. That's good. So what were, um, again, I'm, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit and uh, we'll find out later I'm talking to a lawyer. So maybe that's bad form, but what were your parents' priorities for you and for the family? My parents' priorities for me were very simple. Education. That's it. Just one. Just one. So um, why do you say it so emphatically? What give us give us the actual examples of how you know that? Well, ever since I was a little girl, they had always told me that the ticket to success is education. So if you get good grades or the best grades, then all these doors will open for you. You can go to the the best colleges, and from the best colleges, you can get the best jobs. So the freedom to do what you want was certainly based on education. That was the pathway. Sports were not even on the table. Not on the table. And that'll seem ironic here shortly as we kind of walk through the chronology of your life. So so I asked about their priorities. You answered that question. What What were their expectations? Well, my dad wasn't that involved in my upbringing. Bringing on a day-to-day basis. My dad was very much the stereotypical father who left for work in the morning, came home around five or five 30, expected dinner to be on the table, had little bits of conversation about how the day was. And that was pretty much it. My mom pretty much raised me in terms of what she expected. And her expectations were very clear that you be the best and nothing else is acceptable. I think she's walked that back a little bit with her grandkids. Maybe. <laughs> she's maybe. definitely walked it back with her grandkids. Maybe she's just not being totally transparent with them. But uh, but I knew the answer to that question um, before before it was answered. So um, you you brought up sports a couple times. So I know your dad loves sports. Um, he also played sports back in Indonesia. Yes. Yes, my dad was actually a very good athlete. My dad played all sports, everything ranging from badminton to ping pong. Yes, I know the stereotypical Asian sports, but he was also a very good uh, footballer, that is to say soccer player. He was a very good basketball player. So yeah, he was he was really an athlete as a young man. So how were you introduced to sports? I was introduced to sports because I really wasn't happy with the fact that my mom made me do ballet lessons and tap dance lessons and piano lessons. And what I really, really wanted to do was just play flag football and soccer in the backyard. And so when it became clear that I was not going to be a tap dancer or a ballet dancer, my dad offered me a basketball and that was it. I just loved it. And that took me on the basketball journey. Um, can, can you elaborate a little bit on how you knew you weren't going to be a dancer? I am so <laughs> not graceful and I'm not that kind of, you know, girly girl. I just, I just don't have it in me. I, I'm just, I think a little bit too mean to be a ballet dancer. So, um, so it's interesting. What I'm seeing take shape is your mom had very serious expectations about education. Um, I'm sure your dad supported her, but he, it's fair to say he wasn't that extreme. 
He wasn't that extreme. My dad actually, although he's he's intelligent, he was not the school kid. My dad ran away from home at the age of 16. And I think it was by the grace of God that he finished his schooling and finished university, as they like to call it. My mom was pretty much the exact opposite. She was very driven. She was at the top of her class. She was number one in her university. And those were the values that she wanted me to have and expected me to fulfill. And then how do you, um, how do you think about what discipline was like for you as a, as a child growing up? My mom was very, very strict. There was an expectation that when I came home from school, that the homework would be done, that I would practice the piano, that I would help to make dinner, and that I was not allowed to watch TV unless there was no test the next day. And to that extent, I was only allowed to watch TV for half an hour if I did not have a test. And that was it. That was it. What did you watch? At that young age, I seem to remember the Dukes of Hazard, Mission Impossible, Gilligan's Island. Those are the ones that I really remember. I those mean, are, that, those are good pulls. In, by the way, in the mornings on Saturday mornings, that that was when I was actually really allowed to watch TV, and I was allowed to watch maybe between sixty and ninety minutes of cartoons on Saturdays. But that was it. So it'd be like Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry. So how old were you? You said your dad handed you a basketball. So what age was that? I think I was about seven. And how soon did a basketball goal go up at the house? Probably about six months later. Okay. Um, ironically, the first time I came to your parents' house, I remember looking at the basket thinking, this is like 10 foot eight. It's not, <laughs> it's not 10 feet. And I feel like that's almost like a symbol of what expectations and what your life was like. Is that a, I've never said that to you um, that way. That's but, actually a surprise, but I, I do think that that definitely was an expectation because if the, the hoop was higher, that would cause the ball when I shot it to have a better rainbow. And that would make it go in more. I think that was their, at least my dad's theory. My mom couldn't care less about basketball. She used to scream at me for bouncing the ball in the house and that I had to stop and that I had to come inside. So um, at, 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 I'm assuming you started playing uh, formally, yes? I didn't start playing formally until really middle school and high school because my parents didn't know there were things such as basketball leagues in the neighborhood or AYSO soccer. Wow. I never played any sort of formal sport until I had my first coach when I was in middle school. Okay. I mean, what a contrast from how youth sports are exist today. Definitely. Definitely. I, I think a large part had to do with, you know, like I said before, like sports is not a priority in our household when I was growing up. So they didn't search for it. If it just happened to come about, then that's fine. But if there was a test or my mom felt that my grades faltered in any way, shape or form, then I wasn't allowed to play. So um, you played other sports, yes? Yes, I played volleyball. I ran track. I played softball. 
Okay, so is it fair to say, um, and again, this is another one I don't know the answer to, but at, you have these demands on you from an education standpoint. So you began reading seriously at an early age? I started reading pretty early. I'm not sure when, but because I wasn't allowed to watch TV and I was an only child, my parents aren't going to entertain me. So the option was to go find something to do on my own or to read. So I started reading pretty early. And the books that I remember reading as a little kid is probably those Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia Brown. And then it got a little bit more, I guess, complicated or my mom started expecting me to read some of the James Mishner novels and Shogun and things like that, which weren't necessarily, you know, as fun as reading about Encyclopedia Brown. Okay. And th this is the most important question I have for this whole endeavor. I how, can't wait. How did you learn to read so fast? She's taking a sip of water as we, uh, as I asked that. So sorry for the. I'm not sure how I learned how to read so fast. I just knew that. I had to understand a lot of material quickly and well, because we used to get evaluated in my elementary school and we would have to take these state tests. And the expectation was that I did not receive anything less than a 98% in any of the categories on the test. And so I just had to figure it out. And so, um, well, I guess let's ask the simple question. Did you meet your mom's expectations? And I'm talking about, let's say, elementary and middle school. In elementary school, I did up until the sixth grade. And in the sixth grade, in the vocabulary section of this California state testing, I received a 90% in vocabulary. And my mom felt that was completely unacceptable and that it showed a lack of understanding of the English language. So she started to give me assignments. And so for the rest of that summer, the summer between fifth grade and sixth grade, and then between sixth grade and seventh grade, I was tasked with reading the dictionary. And I had to read between five and 10 pages every day. I had to write the word their definitions. And I had to write at least one sentence that used the word correctly in a sentence. And she would peruse it at the end of the evening when she got home from work. And if I didn't have enough words, she would tell me to go back and do another page or two. That's pretty amazing. Um, I think mo most people listening, I'm guessing are parents and, and I, you and I talk a lot about the level of discipline and how the world evolves and everything. But uh, as we're going to find out, um, I think these things paid off. Your mom, your mom's effort to drive um, these high expectations paid off. So, what did you what did you do wrong as a kid, if anything? I did stuff that my parents would not be proud of, but. These kinds of things you could get away with because there was no ring, there were no video cameras, there weren't people with phones videotaping everything that you did. So my cousins and I, we used to play ding dong ditch and we would go around to all the houses and do things like that. There Your were... kids are going to hear this. I know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
And we used to ride our bikes all the time. I was one of those kids where my parents said, get out of the house. I don't want you in the house. And so my cousins and I, we would go ride our little bikes everywhere around the neighborhood. And we did things like we went further and farther than we were supposed to. But the caveat was that we were supposed to be home at dusk. And I remember at one point, I think I was eight or nine. And I, I told my mom, I don't know what time five o'clock is. Cause I don't have a watch. May I please have a watch? And I'll never forget what she said. She says, you don't need a watch. Just look at the sun. When the sun starts to go down, come home. I like it. I, I, this is why I love your mom. So, um, were your cousins your friends or were there other friends in the mix? My cousins were really my closest friends from the elementary age. We had a couple neighborhood kids that we would hang out and do things with. Like we would fly kites and do things like that. All boys? They were all boys. I had no female <laughs> elementary friends. Um, that's a little foreshadowing, I think, <laughs> about about real life. So were your parents religious? My parents were not religious, really, I think, in the in the way that people think of religion here in the United States. My dad and mom are really more Buddhist, and but my mom wanted me to be as American as possible. So while we did some traditional Buddhist customs, I went to a Presbyterian elementary school. And we went to church every morning before class and the pastor would give a sermon and we would sing songs and I was supposed to read the Bible. And so I didn't really actually read any, you know, Buddhist teachings or Confucianist teachings until I was probably in college. Yeah. Um, and then, so before we kind of leave childhood and start to move into adolescence, I, I know one thing you did, and I, I'm assuming I know the answer why, um, but your parents traveled, they took you traveling a lot as a young person. Yes. Travel was a big thing for my parents. So even though we didn't have a ton of money, we always made it work because my parents, specifically my mom, felt that it was super important to understand the world and other cultures and how other people live. So while I was a kid, we did travel to places like Hong Kong and Singapore and New York and Canada and Paris and London and Amsterdam. And I just remember summers, you know, prior to this day and age of we would take road trips and at one point we drove from Los Angeles through Texas, up through South Dakota, and then back home to Los Angeles. And I was alone in a car with my parents with a book. And I forget what it was called, but it was a football game and it was a handheld football game. It was green and it had these like dots and you could play football, but that was pretty much it. My friends are going to hate me for not knowing the name of that game. I know what you're talking about. And and so you just brought up a good point. You were alone. You were an only child. Yes. Um, that's relatively normal for the last kind of two or three generations of of Chinese families. True. Um, did you feel shortchanged being an only child? 
I did feel shortchanged for a long time. I asked my mom for a baby brother for the longest time and not a sister, not a sister. <laughs> and she would say, what if you get a sister? And I was like, I don't want another girl around here. I don't have any friends who are girls, but I think my parents both knew that they just were going to have one. Gotcha. Um, a true tomboy we're seeing take, take shape right here. I don't know if that's politically correct these days, but who cares? So, okay. So let's, let's kind of leave that phase of life. So um, I'll give you a chance to take a breather to, to level set people. Los Angeles is a very, very large city and you lived, you know, depending on traffic anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half east of downtown LA. Um, but your parents chose to send you to high school, not close to where you live. So where did you go to high school? I went to high school at Flint Ridge Preparatory School, which was in La Cunada, Flint Ridge. As the crow flies, it's about 38 miles from my parents' house to the school. And depending upon LA traffic, it would take anywhere between an hour and two and a half hours to travel to and from school. Each way? Each way. And how did they pick it? My mom picked the school because of the reputation, but it was also close to my dad's office where he worked. He worked at the Ralph M. Parsons Company in Pasadena, which is about six minutes from the school. So ideally speaking, my dad would take me to school before he went to work at eight. And then with practices and things like that, he would pick me up at 5.30 or six when he was off of work. So we've established that um, you were provided for, but your parents didn't have lots of money. They made the decision, no surprise to anybody that's listened to this whole thing, that you went to a very good private high school. Yes. Um, so you are now someone who lives 40 miles away, showing up. This began in ninth grade. I, I started there in seventh. seventh I went from that's seventh right. to twelfth. Okay, so you show up to a new school and you're Asian. I'm assuming there were not a lot of Asian people. Is that Correct. That's correct. Flint Ridge has an old history. It used to be an all boys school. And in 1984, I believe they turned it co-ed and I arrived in 85. And so there weren't a lot of Asians. It was a majority of, you would say, upper class, white, Privilege, and by privilege, I just mean very wealthy, the kind of money I didn't know existed really or had seen in real life. And the kids were mostly white. There weren't a lot of Asians. There wasn't a lot of diversity back then. So how did that feel? What was it like? Well, I was kind of used to it because my elementary school didn't have a lot of Asians either. It was a private elementary school. And so Arcadia and Pasadena at the time were historically white, Caucasian, and historically old money. So um, I don't know the answer to this. Did you did you face tough stuff from a, from a race standpoint? Oh, yeah. I mean, elementary school, I mean, kids would say stuff to me all the time. You know, can you see? How do you see with your eyes? Why don't you open your eyes when you walk around? Uh, you know, all the kinds of derogatory things and stereotypical things that that people hear of or think of today. I mean, I heard it all. And did it how did you deal with it? I dealt with it mainly just by trying to ignore it, which is what my mom would try to tell me. But 
really, she just said, look, there's racism everywhere and it's going to be everywhere your whole life unless you are a white male in the United States there's always going to be some form of it so the way that you counter it is be the best because if you're the best they can't deny you anything but you took that to heart you believed her right of course yeah so i'm i'm flashing back to middle school 7th 8th grade um you're a young becoming a young woman you're going through puberty you're now injected into this school with privileged white people did you did you feel like an outsider i always felt like an outsider but it, it didn't matter because we were all there for the same thing we were there to go to school and i used to say to my mom i don't know that i can really make friends here i don't really identify or we don't have a lot of things in common and my mom would say you're not at school to make friends. You're at school to get an education. So if you focus on that, it doesn't matter. So I think I'm correct that in seventh grade, when you made the move to Flint Ridge Prep, you met one of my favorite people in the world, your best friend, Amy, correct? Amy actually didn't come to Flint Ridge until ninth grade. Ninth grade, okay. And so in seventh and eighth grade, I there was one other individual from my elementary school and ironically enough he was one of the few non-white people he was a, an Indian boy and he ended up going to Flint Ridge as well so we just kind of knew each other and we just kind of became friends just because we were the two non-whites right. in the school right no it's hard I mean I I um I I went to a school I'll let you take another sip of water. I went to a school that was, I don't know, 99% white and was 40 miles from the city, the major city where I grew up. And they bust a dozen African-American kids to our school every day. And I, I just remember how hard it was for them and wanting to be friends with them and wanting to make them feel welcome. But it's it's a hard thing. So, um, okay, you're at Flint Ridge Prep. You're making this massive commute every day in the car with your dad, back and forth. You're now playing organized sports, Yes. I am. So I started seventh grade and I was at school early because of my dad's work. And it turned out that the practices for the seventh and eighth graders were early in the morning. And there was a volleyball team, a girls volleyball team. So I ended up doing that. Okay. It was, it was really I'm, fun. I'm saying, okay. Cause I know that's not it. No, yeah. I, I mean, it was one of those things where I was at school early. So instead of sitting around and doing nothing, you know, I actually, I love sports. And so the opportunity to play and to play for a coach was fun and intriguing. And I started to make friends just through sports. So, you know, we talked about the racing, but I don't, I don't th think the racing is a divisive thing. It's just something that you have to learn to work around and work with. And if you really want to make it work, it works. Yeah, no, I think it's great advice. I mean, combine that with what you said a few minutes ago to be the best. I, I think it's a great thing. So um, quick story, not too long ago, maybe six months, my mom sent me my old letterman's jacket from high school. And I wish people could see you laughing. <laughs> and she said, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but I'm sending it to you. I don't want to know what you do with it. And, uh, you know, everybody can use their imagination what I did with it after she sent it but you went and got yours out. So let's clear the air once and for all. 
How many varsity letters did you earn in high school? 14. Four, 14 varsity letters um, at a pretty good athletic school, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a small prep league. I mean, it's not like we were playing teams like modern day, but for our prep league, we were considered good and competitive. Okay, so um, I've never met anybody that had 14 varsity letters, including like Deion Sanders and, and Bo Jackson. So, um, but basketball was your love. Basketball was my love, but I I did play volleyball and softball and I ran track. And what was your, um, take us inside your head. What was your mental approach to sports in high school? My mental approach to sports in high school was I just wanted to be the best. And that was it because I knew that if I were the best, that they'd have to play me. And so that was my goal. And I wanted to play. I never wanted to sit on the bench. And so my priority was to be the best that I could be and be the best on the team. Got it. So, um, you were getting, you were getting looks from small colleges to play basketball. I was, I was, but it was never really a real thing, so to speak, because my mom specifically had in her head that I was either going to go to an Ivy league school or I was going to go to Stanford. And so when Stanford thankfully said yes all dreams or hopes of ever playing basketball again in college were for not because I was going to go to Stanford okay so you know no regrets but if you got to write that script yourself what do you think you would have done I still would have gone to Stanford yeah but it was just kind of funny uh, because the basketball thing was never even an option and when I broach the subject to my parents i mean you can imagine you know an old school first generation family they were like basketball you want to play basketball at the time there was no wnba she just said there's no future in that go get an education yeah. when you graduate from a school like stanford doors will open and you can do whatever you want and um, before we leave high school, rumor has it you you still have the hundred meter record at Flint Ridge Prep. Oh, I don't know about that. I'm Maybe pretty, we're pretty sure it's true, uh, give or take thirty some odd years later. I don't want to I don't want to necessarily date you for the for everyone listening. Um, okay, um, I know you succeeded from an education standpoint in high school, and it was culminated by being the valedictorian of Flint Ridge Prep. That's true. Um, how did that make you feel? It made me happy because it made my parents happy. So when you um, spoke at graduation and you're, and you're standing up there, this first generation kid, um, in, uh, fish out of water at a, call it what it is, a rich kid school. What did, did, was it retribution? Was it joy? Was it not nothing? How did you feel? No, it, it was, it was joy because honestly, my parents were happy. Yeah. It, there was no retribution or anything like that. I, you know, I had a great time at prep. You know, the classmates were great. I still have really good friends that I keep in touch with. So there was no ill feeling or anything like that. It was just, honestly, it's what they expected. And I'm glad I was able to deliver. Yeah. So, so you delivered from an academic standpoint, you, you definitely delivered from an athletic standpoint. We won't go through all of your 
accolades, but your letter jacket weighed like 30 pounds with <laughs> medals and patches and all CIF, which is the equivalent of all state for people that don't know Southern California and Northern California um, divisional structure. Um, did you have fun in high school? I think I had fun to the extent that I was supposed to have fun, I guess. I wasn't a big partier. I was not the most popular kid in school. I was kind of considered, I think, if you ask the people that I went to school with, I think I was kind of considered a nerd who played sports. That's who I was. It's fascinating. It's quite a, it's <laughs> quite a contrast from my, how I would answer that question um, about did I have fun in high school? So um, one thing before we move on to Stanford, which I'm sure people are dying to hear about, um, food is a big part of your life. And um, I know that because of all the restaurant bills we, we accrue over time, but um, I'm assuming that started at a very young age. Well, since I was very little, food was an important part of our day. It was the time to celebrate life. It was time to celebrate family. So every night, regardless of my schedule at school growing up or my dad's schedule, we always had family dinner and we always sat together and my mom always cooked. And even though we didn't have a lot of money, there was always three dishes. There was always a, you know, two different kinds of protein, a vegetable and rice. And we always sat and we ate together as a family. Yeah, and I know. I mean, that's a struggle for us. The kids are busy. Work, Absolutely. Things, but but it was a priority for your parents. It was a priority for my parents. Was it traditional Asian food most of the time? It was always traditional always. Asian food. I feel jealous <laughs> <laughs> with that. Um, okay, so you go to you go to Stanford in the '90s. Obviously, amazing school, but fair to say, not not quite. Um, it hadn't become the Silicon Valley mecca that it is today, right? No, it, it hadn't. I mean, we were in the real incipient stages of the internet. So can you, can you tell everybody what incipient means? Please? <laughs> I don't know. Beginning. Beginning. Okay. So I started in 89 and Stanford at the time was just becoming a hotbed. So, I mean, the biggest people at the time there were obviously Apple and Hewlett Packard, but Apple was still making those old Apple computers. You had the Apple one, the Apple two. And so a lot of people really went because of the reputation. And at the time I did not know it was this hotbed of intellectual property and things like that. I went because basically of the name. Okay. And how, how did things get teed up by your parents? So now you're leaving home, their only daughter's going and I'll, I'll revisit the expectations. How did they set expectations? Was it different than high school? And what were those expectations expectations? So my parents expected me to go to Stanford and thereafter they expected me to go to an Ivy league law school. So when I was growing up, I pretty much had the stereotypical, I think, Asian choice of what I was going to do. And that was either doctor, lawyer, accountant. And since I can't stand the sight of blood, med school, med school was out. I don't love numbers, so accountant was out. And my aunt used to say that I was 
what's the right word in English? The Indonesian word is buchis, which means super talkative. So I guess in English, oh. it would be garrulous. I thought she was going to say argumentative, but... Well, that too, yeah. that too. So lawyer was pretty much the task. So that was the expectation that I was going to study something substantial, you know, none of these so-called foo-foo subjects like philosophy or English or history, as my parents like to describe them. And I was going to study either finance, economics, things like that, political science, maybe it was a little foo-foo for them and then go to law school. Nice. Okay. So, um, you were excited to leave home. I was very excited to leave home. I mean, my parents were very, very strict. I remember my curfew was 10 a.m., which is really 10 hard. 10 p.m. 10 p.m., sorry. <laughs> 10 p.m. in high school. And when you live, you know, 45 minutes away from your friends, 10 p.m. is really early for a curfew. So uh, I was excited to be off on my own and, you know, figure it out. Did it hit you pretty quickly? The you, you talked about not really knowing kind of the prowess of Stanford. Um, did that hit you pretty quickly once you were there? Definitely. I mean, I remember being in the in the freshman dorm and starting to talk to people and everyone that you talked to there, at least that I had immediate contact with, was either valedictorian or salutorian in their class. And I thought that I had a pretty good AP resume because I think I had 21 credits or 22 credits going into Stanford. And then I started meeting people that had 125 AP credits. So it's very humbling. And you start to talk to people there and you realize that you may have been a big fish in a small pond. Right. And now you're just a fish yep. in a pond. Yeah trying to find your way. So, um, so how, how do you describe yourself as a college student? I would say that my freshman year and my junior and senior year, I was a good student. I went to class, I did the assignments and I did what I was supposed to do. Although freshman year, I did go to probably more parties than I probably should have. Yeah. Uh, sophomore year, going to class and going to school and doing homework was not really a priority, which, you know, I know Sam and Casey are going to hear this and please don't follow mom's footsteps. Okay. But okay. It, it, did that continue on last couple of years? No, junior and senior year, I realized I really had to get my act together and do well. And I ended up doing well my junior and senior year. And I knew I had to do well in order to get into a, a decent law school. So you studied economics. I did. And you began applying to law schools. I did. So you went to? I ended up going to Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Okay. Which is not the Ivy League. It is not the Ivy League. And that did not go over very well with the parents. Okay. Well, elaborate. Well, they, my mom had told me a long time ago that she expected me to go to Stanford as an undergrad and then Harvard or Yale for law school. But based on my screwing around, so to speak, um, my sophomore year, I knew that wasn't really in the cards. And yeah. so I wanted to go to a reputable law school and 
actually, you know, I did not love the Bay Area. And so to come home to Los Angeles, which I always considered home, even today, even though we now live in San Diego, right, right. I still consider LA home. So it was nice to come home. So did you have any idea what it meant to be a lawyer at this point? Aside from watching LA Law, no. So it's funny. I have LA Law in my notes. I thought you might bring that up. So I, I asked that question because I don't think most people know what being a lawyer really means. Um, did did you? How did you start to understand that over the course of your three years of law school? Well, law school is an interesting place because they really teach you how to think critically in terms of obtaining information processing the information and then finding the argument that works for the client or for you, whomever it may be in whatever business you're, you're in. So the first year of law school is very demanding. There is a ton of reading. There's a ton of analysis. And if you're shy, it really isn't the place for you because the professor's are very fond of the Socratic method in which they call on everybody in the class to get the right answer or, or the answer they're looking for. There, there's an amazing book um, by, uh, I believe it's Scott Turow called One L that I'm, I'm sure every law student in the world. Is we all read it. Yeah, but it's it, for anybody that um, wants to understand the grind and, and the Socratic method, it's about the first year of, I think, Harvard, right? Correct. Yeah, it, it's a fantastic book. So... Um, you're going through three years of law school. Was there any point where you started thinking maybe this is not for me or were you all in? It's pretty much all in. After my first year of law school, I had a great uh, criminal justice teacher. Uh, Lori Levinson was her name. And I think she still teaches at Loyola, but I just fell in love with her class and the workings of the justice system. And I knew at that point that I was, when I graduated, I was going to be a DA. Okay. So you, you, you hit on my next question. So you're, you're finishing law school and you go to work. Tell us where you went to work. Well, first I interned, uh, at the Santa Cruz DA's office. Um, a friend of mine in law school, Tommy Mills, shout out to him. He hooked me up and I started working in Santa Cruz. And then from Santa Cruz, I went to the Sacramento DA's office. And I was there for about four years. And tell us about your job. So I was considered a deputy district attorney. The pay was crap, but the job was super exciting. So we, you started off in either misdemeanors or juvenile hall. I started out misdemeanors. So misdemeanors is basically the prosecution of crimes like domestic violence, DUIs, criminal trespass, things like that. It's 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 small potatoes, but you kind of get your feet wet. There isn't a lot of training that goes into it, surprisingly enough. So they pretty much give you a files, I would say maybe between 15 and 40 files. And they tell you to read over the files. And then you get to go try your case in court. And you learn how to sit a jury. You learn how to do voir dire. You learn how to question a witness, but really it's it's crazy because there really is no formal training. So no pun intended. It's kind of trial by fire. You're just yes. thrown in. Okay. Yes. So get what what's your give us a good jury story. 
<laughs> well, in misdemeanors, the my fondest memory in misdemeanors was I had a DUI case and the driver ended up sleeping in a tree with his car upside down in somebody's lot that wasn't his. And he claimed that he was being chased by a dog. And that's why he was in the tree. I thought you were going to say a lion. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the best. It was just the best. I mean, you could just see the jury laughing as he actually made the fatal mistake of testifying and he got up on the stand and I started asking questions about how he got into the tree and you could, they were literally laughing out loud. So needless to say that he, he, that didn't work out well. For him. <laughs> that did not work out well for him. Okay. So at some point you moved to other degrees of crime. Yes. Yes. I went into felonies. And so, you know, there was, you know, attempted murder cases, assault cases, but really I, the one place that I knew that I did not want to go, which precipitated me leaving the DA's office was the SACA unit, which is uh, the child abuse and uh, unit. And I knew that friends of mine had worked in there and one of my closest friends had some cases and we would talk them over and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Just bad stuff. It was really, really bad. So it, what is the, what's the culture like at a, you know, Sacramento is a good size city, I think maybe fourth biggest in, in California, but what's the culture like inside? Give us a, some perspective. How many lawyers are there? What does the office look like? What's, what's the culture? The culture of the office is fun. You feel like everybody's on the same team. Um, I guess I would kind of equate it to a sorority or fraternity where you're all fighting for the same side. There are cliques. So in that sense, it's a little bit like high school. People have their friends and some friends don't like other friends, which I think is true of any workplace. But it is, I guess, nothing is off limits because of the stuff you deal with. So the language and the profanity is quite prevalent, but no one ever takes it as offensive or at least no one that I knew of because it was just kind of a way to deal with the horrific things that people seem like they have no problem doing to each other. So was there, when you think back to um, people that were found guilty, um, and I'm talking more kind of the felony, the felony sure. group of people, there's a sense of pride when they're put away. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's definitely a sense of pride. I mean, there, there was an incident where a police officer in Sacramento was, was shot and killed and the entire city shuts down. And it's almost like the entire bastion of law enforcement rallies around the prosecutor and the case. And, you know, they, they want justice for their their fallen comrade yeah. and a, a lot of times you know people give a bad rap to cops but i don't know many people who would want that job yeah, and tough. and it's a tough job and if if one of them gets hurt or dies while doing it you know it's it's a big deal yeah what was the what was the hardest thing you had to deal with 
in your time at the DA's office? Probably the psychological grind that it doesn't end, that people will continue hurting themselves and hurting others. And there's no real uh, rehabilitation. So for example, some of the kids that I prosecuted as juveniles a couple of years later, when they're adults, they come back through the system. Yeah. So, so before we leave your four years at the, at the DA's office, just, and maybe you already answered it just in, in the last question, but how did it, how did it affect or shape your views on society? Well, I think people are mean. They're just mean to each other. And I think that society is a tough place. So you need to have a thick skin and you need to be ambitious and willing to fight for what you want and to play within the rules to get there. Jail is not a place you want to go. One of the things they had us do as young DAs is they had us not just walk through, you know, the younger juvenile hall, which is pretty ugly, but we went to Folsom prison and that is definitely not a place you ever want to be yeah. ever. Um, okay. So appreciate you sharing that stuff. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a long time ago, but, uh, you know, for your first job out of school, I mean, it's pretty serious business to be involved in. So you made the decision to leave. I did. And honestly, I credit my best friend, Amy, for my decision to leave, because she said after working at the DA's office for those four years, she said to me, if you and I had met today and not when we were 14, I don't think I would be friends with you. And I said, why? And she said, you are so cynical and so mean and your outlook on society is so pessimistic. I don't think that I would be friends with you. And that's when I knew I had to get out. Wow. I mean, that's pretty amazing that she would give you that feedback. Yeah. I mean, I say all the time feedback is a gift, but that's an amazing example of something that probably wasn't easy to hear, but I'm assuming was one of the most important things you were told in your whole life. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, That's why I love Amy. Shout out, shout out to her too. Okay. So um, you took a different job in a different place. I did. I left Sacramento and I ended up in LA uh, at Santa Monica at a small boutique law firm, we, which did litigation, business litigation, entertainment litigation. And it was just like LA law. <laughs> I wish it was just like LA law with Arnie Becker. No, it was not. It was, it was also a grind. Uh, I was low man on the totem pole. So most of my days were spent you know, going through emails and documents and writing briefs. So it's not nearly as glamorous as LA law. Not quite. And so I kind of, I inferred this earlier when I said most people don't understand what it means or what it takes to be a lawyer, but fair to say in that role, it's not, like you said, it's not glamorous, but you're you're not even in the courtroom. It's just a massive grind of work at your desk 
Yes. I mean, the best thing I said about working at the firm was my office. I had a really beautiful corner office, which overlooked the Santa Monica Pier and the boardwalk. But I like to tell people that the only thing that was missing from the office was a bed because I was pretty much there 14, 16 hour days, seven days a week. And it's a grind. You're not in the courtroom. There's no glamour or excitement. You're really sifting through documents and doing research and trying to find the information that'll help the client. Um, so did you like the work? No. And how long were you at the firm? I want to say about two years. Okay. And so um, I'll, I'll leave the witness for, you know, to use a pun with a lawyer, but I met you during this time. You did. Um, I thought I worked a lot and needless to say, you worked a lot more than I did. And so, you know, Sunday brunch was not really an option because you were in the office Saturday all day. I mean, that it was, it was truly like a seven day a week. It was a seven affair. day a week affair. So um, where did you live in LA and what did you do for fun? While I worked at the firm? Yeah. So while I worked at the firm, I lived in the Marina, which I loved. I loved being by the beach in my short moments of free time i like to run along the boardwalk there and watch the sunset and every once in a while the partners would gift us tickets to king's games or lakers games and i would go to those and you're uh we didn't really well we kind of hit it on earlier but big la sports fan i am um okay so i'm not gonna uh i'm trying to figure out how to manage this and not make jokes or sound braggadocious, but, um, you know, we hit it off pretty quickly when we met. Um, I would, I was living at the beach as well. And, um, I think we both knew pretty early we were going to get married. We did. <laughs> um, and so we left the beach, we went to the suburbs. We did. Um, so just, you know, what was your, um, mindset as our relationship started to take shape? Not about me, just more about life, adulthood, pending motherhood, all those kind of things? Well, I think what I realized as great as my parents were in providing for me, what I wanted was I did not ideally want to work while I raised the children. And my priority was staying at home with the kids. So it worked out that I was able to do that and I'm grateful. So um, I agree. I'm super grateful too. And so um, we moved to Sherman Oaks, California in our little, little starter house and we got a dog. We did. Um, go ahead and tell everybody her name that we regret. I think deep down. I don't regret the name. Yeah. It was a Husky. Her name was Chukchi and she was named after the native American tribe, the Chukchi Indians that brought the Huskies over the straight into the United States. So um, I thought it was such a great idea to name her Chukchi. And then every person we met, we had to, you know, tell them a diatribe about why their name was their, their name. But she was a great dog that lived to be almost 14. So were you excited about becoming a mom? I was very excited. Chuk was actually the baby before the babies. Right. So it, it was good. Were you scared? No. Were you nervous? 
I wasn't nervous. I think I was excited, really. I had no idea what I was doing, but you know, I think that's another thing you just learn as you go. There's no book on how to be a, a good parent. So when you go to, so we'll level set. So we have, we have two boys um, that are coming up toward the end of high school and um, we'll talk about them a little bit more in a second, but being a mom is hard. I was working a ton back then. So think about your kind of darker moments and um, I'll pay you a compliment. Like, I, I think I'm not just saying it. I really believe this, obviously, but I think you're an amazing mom, like your level of dedication, including like, well, thank you, putting homemade pasta in a thermos this morning for our 18 year old before he goes to school. It's, it's, it's really impressive. But those first few years are really hard. The first few years are really hard. It's trying to figure out when you can sleep, how to make sure the kids are doing great and getting their sleep and getting their playtime and trying to do all the right things for their development. You don't want to make that mistake where you're like, oh my gosh, I, I think I might have ruined him for the rest of his life. So there is a little bit, I guess, of that fear that you don't want to make a catastrophic mistake. But I guess they turned out okay, I think, they're, so they're, far. They're doing okay. <laughs> what, what, what would you, with respect to just pure motherhood, what would you do differently if you had to do over? Honestly, I think I would worry less. Like, it, it all works out. I, I really feel like I had a lot of anxiety and worry as they were growing up. And I think I should have just whatever happens happens it's all going to work out as long as like i said you don't you know leave the house while they're in the bathtub i think you're okay you're doing the best you can yeah no i think i think it's i think it's really good advice i think i'd actually answer it the same way hearing your answer so what were what were your key priorities for your children i wanted them to be good brothers to each other i wanted them to have respect and I wanted them to know the difference between right and wrong. Um, that's really good advice. How do you think they've done? I think pretty good so far, hopefully. I mean, nobody's in jail. So I think so far we're doing okay. Yeah, and I'll brag. Like, it's, it's Nikki and I talk about this a lot. Like, they, they never fight. It's really weird. Like, I expected, like, black eyes and crying, and they just never threw down. That is actually surprising. So, I, I mean, it speaks it speaks to the respect piece. Um, how do you think about their 18 and 16? How do you think about, or what advice do you want to give them as they start to, as you are now worrying less and they're starting to spread their wings? I think the advice that I would give them is to remember the McClintock rules, which are always do your best, never quit, be nice, protect your brother. And along that same vein, I think that I would like them to find their passion and have the focus to fulfill it and the self-discipline not to stray from it. That's amazing. Um, and just for the record, the three rules, which we added a fourth along the way to protect your brother were were painted with a brush in our garage gym 
at home in LA that they had to stare at for, you know, they wanted to work out. They wanted to hang out with their mom in the home gym long before COVID we had a home gym, which was one of our best decisions. But um, now they need to get better because I, we asked them the three rules recently and they couldn't, (laughs) but um, we did our part. We painted, we painted it on the wall. Um, So we'll, we'll come back to the kids in a few minutes. So um, I made a few notes on a few things that I think are a big part of who you are. Um, I think they mostly took shape in in your adult life. Um, but talk about running. Oh, I love running. Running is very cathartic for me. It's a place where I can not think about anything, think about everything, and just kind of let go. So you were a sprinter in high school. I was a sprinter in high school. And then as I got older, I realized that, you know, there are no 30-year-olds aside from Olympic athletes who do sprints. So uh, a good friend of mine suggested that I try longer distance running. And I just kind of fell in love with it. You know, I think the the endorphin stereotype definitely holds true. At least it does for me. And I started doing it. I started doing it when I was working at the firm to get away from the stress. And I run along that boardwalk in Santa Monica. And then as we moved into Sherman Oaks, I started running in the Santa Monica mountains and running the trails and getting away from the noise and the people. And it was just great. And what kind of distances? Well, it started off pretty short, you know, five to six, and then it started gaining momentum and then you know longer you know 12 13 and then i think it culminated later to like 50k i still have it in my heart to want to run a 50 miler but i don't think my body actually likes that idea and it's kind of telling me so so um you've done quite a few marathons 10 10 marathons um you've done some pretty cool ones um and, and we'll get um more on that in a second, but I, I watched you, I watched running take shape, but also fitness. So what, what is the motivation? Why are you so hardcore about fitness and running? Well, honestly, it's, it's purely selfish. I I feel good when I run and I feel healthy. So it might just be all in my mind, but because it makes me feel good, I do it. And it's, it's very addictive. And when I feel good, I feel like, you know, I can indulge in other things, you know, maybe I have, you know, that donut that looks really good in the morning or, you know, that cheesecake after a nice steak dinner. So, but really it just, it makes me feel good. And so I keep doing it. So running's hard on your body. It is. Um, if you're, if you're willing to share a little bit just about your journey from a running health standpoint and, and your frustrations that you still have. Well, so, uh, I started running a lot. And then in 2010, I broke my foot, but I didn't know that I broke my foot. I just had shooting pain and it was initially diagnosed as a neuroma in my left foot. And so I started getting cortisone shots because I couldn't stop running and I didn't want to miss the upcoming marathons that I had signed up for. So I just kept running and I didn't realize that the foot was actually broken until my last marathon, which was in 2013. 
And after that marathon, I saw a specialist at Cedars and he said, your foot's actually broken. So after that, then I had- So um, can we pause for a second? So just to be clear, you were running marathon distances on a broken foot? Yes. Okay. All right. Keep going. <laughs> just to point that out. Yeah. Uh, and I had also actually uh, run a 50K on that broken foot. But anyway, in 2013, I got it, it fixed. And about 10, 11 months after that, I started running again, not nearly the same distance, but maybe just 10 to 13 miles. And then I had further issues and I had cysts growing in the back of my ankle. So then I had another surgery to deal with that. And so I haven't really run as far as I've wanted to since probably 2018, 19, and it's now 2024. So now I do what I call just baby runs, but I would love to get back there, but I don't think my body's really happy about the fact that I want to go back there because it's giving me signals that it's not happy with me. It's tough. So one thing that happened um, as you approached the larger surgery to correct the the broken foot plate, I don't, I don't know the terminology. I thought the doctor did you a good service with his honesty and transparency about what he could or couldn't do and couldn't, couldn't promise. Can you just talk about his approach to you as a patient? Yeah. I mean, uh, I do have to get a shout out to him because he was great. Dr. Thordeson at Cedars basically didn't want to do surgery on me because he knew I was an avid runner. And he asked if I could just run with the pain. And if he gave me orthotics, that might be the best avenue for me because he told me that if he cut me, that it would never be the same. And he could not promise that I would run marathon distances again. And so I asked him, how far could he guarantee me running? And <laughs> he said, the most I can guarantee that you'll run pain-free is 13 miles. And so I then asked him how long until I could run that far again. And he was honest and he said a minimum of a year before you'll be able to run that far again. And so of course I was despondent, but I couldn't physically walk without pain. Right. So I went ahead with the surgery and he was true to his word. You know, he told me that my running gait would change and it did, but I was able to run 13 pain-free. And it was when I started amping up the mileage back up to 16, 18, that it started to hurt. Yeah. And I, I mostly asked that I wasn't planning on it just because so many people deal with the healthcare system, doctors and and all kinds of different people. And I agree. Dr. Thordeson was a, was a class act and just laid it down brutal truth and, and proper expectations. And, and I would encourage anybody listening to ask for that from your, from your caregivers as you deal with things. Um, so I know you love sports and I don't remember if it was our second, third date. I have all these stories about your sports knowledge. Um, what do you love about the best athletes in the world? I love the drive and the determination that they show. And they just really leave it out all on the court or on the field. And it's inspiring. I agree. Um I'll tee this one up for you. So who is your favorite basketball player of all time? Uh, 
I would have to say number one is magic because he's who I grew up with and I was a point guard and that's how I wanted to pass like. I wanted to pass like magic. But a very, very close second is Kobe. Yeah, I thought for sure you were going to say Kobe Bryant. And then in the middle of my question, I'm like, no, she, we just watched uh, Winning Time not too long ago. She's <laughs> going she's gonna to say magic. What do you love about Kobe? His passion and the fact that he just never gave up. Yeah, he had he had a great approach. Um, and sad day. Ironically, we had just moved to San Diego when he passed and used to run the trails where his helicopter crashed. Yes. Um, in Calabasas, where we lived for 14 years. Correct. Um, tough day for a lot of people. So a couple of the things that are a big part of your life. Um, another thing that fascinated me early on was meeting a a Chinese Indonesian woman who was head over heels in love with Bruce Springsteen. So <laughs> where in the world did that come from? And then we'll get into a little more about the boss. You know, I first was exposed to Springsteen probably in ninth grade. And that's when his song dancing with the dark kind of hit the top 40. But a friend of mine said that if you really want to know his music, go back and start with greetings from Asbury Park and make your way through all the way to Born to Run and Nebraska. And when I really started listening to the music, he just touched a nerve. And so from then on, I was, I was hooked. Yeah, I knew, I knew some basic stuff about Bruce. I've obviously been indoctrinated into the gospel that is Bruce Springsteen, but uh, I would I would challenge people whether they like him or not to dig into the lyrics and the the story. It's really the things he writes about are are um, pretty incredible. Okay, um, back to running for a second. So, uh, was your last marathon Boston? It was Boston. Okay, in 2013. Correct. Which was the year of the bombing. Yes, that was completely surreal. So usually, so just let's level. Sorry, I just want to make sure I'm being clear. You ran in the Boston Marathon the year that it was the finish line was bombed. I did. Okay, let's hear it. So I was in the hotel room and I didn't know what was going on because at the time my TV wasn't working. So I had called you to say that I had finished and tell everybody why I wasn't there. You weren't there because our oldest son at the time was playing flag football and it was the opening weekend of flag football for this team that he used to play on with all his friends called the Bulldogs. And he said to us uh, prior to me leaving for Boston, do I really have to go and watch you run? I really would rather play football in my game. And I said, okay, so you stayed home. So I went alone. And just, just real quick, let me interject something. The, um, you know, people that have seen that footage, um, the explosions were, if you're looking down the race course from the finish line, we're on the right side and on a, on Boylston street. And the first two times you ran the Boston marathon before the third, I was with the boys further down Boylston Street on the opposite side of where the bombs took place. But I it, I would be remiss not to mention how fortunate I feel to not have been there 
and have the boys who were very, you know, they were, they were young, um, early, early elementary school age kids. Not that we would have been affected. We weren't that close to where the bomb was, but we always watched the race in the same place. So it was very surreal to, I was very happy to not be there, but let's go back to that day. Yeah. So I was, I was happy you weren't there either, but I was in the room and the TV wasn't working. And so after I had called you to tell you I was done, I went to get cleaned up and I heard like two big booming sounds and I thought it was odd and I had no idea what it was. And then my phone had, you know, 35 text messages with people asking me if I was okay. And I thought it was strange because no one's ever cared if I've run a marathon before. And so I called you again and that's when you kind of let me know that uh, something terrible had happened and they came up to fix my TV. And and it was crazy because usually the night of the marathon is, is a huge celebration. It's Patriots Day. Everyone's out in the street celebrating and everyone's having a good time. And when we went downstairs or I should, I went downstairs, it was like a war zone. There were tanks rolling down the street soldiers with m16s everywhere there was a curfew in place it was bananas yeah a super surreal day and obviously we're glad the boston marathon is back in full effect i um it's hard to get into but you don't have to run it to participate in the joy of how that city celebrates on patriots day so anybody that wants to go it's it's really a cool thing where every business shuts down outside of restaurants and bars and a million plus people line the course. It's just an amazing spectacle to witness. Oh, it's great. The Boston Marathon is great. Yeah, good stuff. Um, so that kind of brings us to today. So I was thinking about talking to you. We're, we're not finished, um, but it wouldn't be, I think my friends would be very disappointed in me if we didn't have a drink. It's it's happy hour somewhere right now. It's always happy hour somewhere. So um you picked out something that you you've that we could share. So I'm gonna grab a couple glasses and and you have a love that you've developed of spirits. Um, so maybe as you give us some background on your love of spirits, let us know what we're gonna pour here. And then I've got uh, a few more, I think, really fun questions for us. Okay. So what I have here I picked out, it's an orphan barrel. It's copper tongue. It's been aged 16 years. It's cast strength. But I started developing this little habit i should say uh, when we were in calabasas maybe a hobby is better than habit <laughs> habit hobby same thing so a friend of ours was involved in the liquor business and he turned me on to uh, the spirits specifically scotch at the time and he kind of taught me what was involved, how to drink it, the proper way to drink it. And I started a small collection at the time. And then I started branching out into other spirits. So now it includes um, not just scotch, but bourbon and tequila. And kind of funky American whiskeys. Correct. Okay. So how do you drink? So so what are we having we're having copper tongue or okay, yeah, sorry, sorry. I was situating. And then how do you like to taste it? 
I usually like to have it with just a couple splashes of really good water. Okay, so let's do that. I wish everybody could see the smile on Nikki's face right now. But technically, it's four o'clock. So, I mean, this is fair game, I think, on a Thursday. Okay, so hope you heard that. All right. I haven't called you babe the whole show, but I'll say cheers, babe. Cheers. So... That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. I'm going to go through a series of not so much like uh, rapid fire questions, but just, you know, we'll, we'll kind of make our way from exiting your adult life into some things kind of looking ahead. So what do you, um, back to motherhood, what are, what are your specific traits that you think have made you a great mom? I'm not that nice. I'm demanding. And I guess I expect them to show us respect. Okay. To be respectful. So elaborate on not that nice. <laughs> well, I think it's important that for me anyway, that my kids know that I have their back, but I'm not their friend. I'm their mom. So if they do something wrong, I'm there to help, but I'm also there to correct. Good deal. I said it earlier. You're, you're, I would answer that with dedication, like, uh, you know, a hardcore lawyer, Stanford, valedictorian, all these things. And you flip the switch because you, and in turn, we prioritize you being a great mom. And it's like, it's just next level, the level of dedication. And I, and I know, I mean, I, I'm saying this mostly for our sons, Sam and Casey, they know it for sure. And they don't think you're not nice. <laughs> All I ever hear is where's mom, where's mom, where's mom. <laughs> so um, are there, are there mistakes that you have made over the course of your life that you feel like you continue to make? Yes, I'm impulsive and judgmental, and I'm trying to get better at that. Okay, D does the, interesting, does the judgmental, do you think that stems from the DA days? I think it stems from the DA days, but it also stems, you know, just from growing up, like I don't, I don't have a lot of patience for stupidity, and it bugs me when I see it. And I just guess need to be more patient. I, I, I don't know. Well, we all, we all appreciate your candor. Um, so do you think you're lucky? I think I'm very lucky. Why? Because my parents put me in a good place and I'm lucky I met you. I'm, I agree. <laughs> I'm grateful. You know, the boys are healthy and. Uh, I'm grateful for where we are and our friends and the family. I agree. Um, do you feel like life is going by quickly or slowly? Super fast. Super fast. Super fast. Why? Because I think really I just see the boys growing and it really feels like yesterday that they were on tricycles. Yeah. 
running around, you know, asking to be pushed on the swing or take me to the park. Will you push me down the slide? Will you set up the slip and slide for us? And now they're, you know, out with their friends, like, peace out, mom. We'll be home by curfew. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, yeah, I always answer that question. I think it's going by both. I think it's quick and slow. I mean, parts of it feel like forever ago and parts of it feel like I can't, like you just said, I can't believe um, where we are, but you know, my, my, what I try to do is take those moments where maybe I have some anxiety about the speed of life and use it as motivation to slow things down, cherish given moments, it's be, a good idea. be present. It's a good yeah, idea. There you go. You can, I like it. So from a, from a personal standpoint, are there any, um, specific things you're working on now to get better? Patience. And running. Uh, I I uh, was, well, I don't run anymore. I walk our dog, but you came down the hill. I mean, gosh, I think it might have even been yesterday. And I was walking up the hill. This is all before the boys get up. And just the smile on your face was, I mean, you looked like a 16-year-old girl, you know, frolicking down the street. I was, I was happy to see you that way. How do you define success? Being happy with where you are and what you have. That's really good. I like that. I totally agree, actually. Um, so, all right, here's my my best surprise that I can give you. So I asked our children for questions they would like to ask you. Ooh. So I'll say it again. So Sam, Samuel Lance McClintock, our oldest son is 18. He's a senior in high school. And Casey Alexander McClintock, is a sophomore in high school and they're really good buddies and boys we are very grateful that you two are friends and you have each other's backs it's you know rule number four is protect your brother and and you both are are doing it and and we mandate that you continue to do it so question number one from sam how is your firstborn son so sexy <laughs> he takes after his father um are you surprised that that was his question or not? <laughs> I'm not surprised. Okay. That's totally Sam. Okay. He's very funny. He is funny. Um, very outgoing. And then Casey, our 16-year-old, asked, um, how is your second son so much better than your first? <laughs> That's also a total Casey question. Okay. So um, in their defense, I that is that is how they responded. But I pushed back and said, hey, this is, you know, we're memorializing this conversation with your mother for eternity um is there anything else you'd like to ask so sam's question was if you could go back and raise us any differently how would you do it i would make them learn a second language and push them to go to honestly chinese school on saturdays all right sam be careful what you wish for <laughs> um it's really good advice and and my best friend who uh, is Anthony Pope, who was in episode two, my my first long interview, all four of his kids have done extensive Japanese school, and they're all fluent. And it's really a cool thing. So I applaud Anthony and Erico, his wife, for pushing that anything else on that front. I think I would have really um, totally done the Asian thing and made them keep playing an instrument. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, 
they dabbled, but they didn't like it. They dabbled, they didn't like it. <laughs> okay, and then Casey said, um, if you could pick what sports we had played, what would you pick? I really wished Sam would have stuck with basketball and baseball. I wish that Casey would still run and play baseball. Yeah. He was a good runner. He was a good runner. And and uh, talk about a fun thing as a dad to watch him run in formal races, like 5K trail runs with his mom was was pretty special. Um, and, and just to level set, Casey plays baseball and Sam played lacrosse most of the way through high school. So um, we just, boys, we love watching you. We just love watching like, like most parents do. Okay. Um, I did this on the last episode and uh, you actually helped me compose these questions. So you know what I'm going to ask you. So what is your all-time favorite movie? Godfather. Why? Because The Godfather, it's about family, loyalty, business, and how family means everything. It is a it is a deep, um, awesome movie that I don't know. You and I've probably watched ten times together. What um, so? What book or books has had the biggest impact on you? Recently, I would say Team of Rivals and. A long time ago, the fiction book, The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. So Team of Rivals is about Abraham Lincoln. Correct. And what's the story? The Team of Rivals is about how Lincoln put together his cabinet and that he facilitated the personalities of these different individuals who had different priorities, but he made them all work together and he made it a success. And he was also driven by a, a real mission to serve others. Uh, of course, of course. And to, and to save the nation. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, I think our current um, corporate leaders and political leaders could learn a lot from, from that book. Um, when you want to be inspired, what song do you put on? Born to run. Born to run. Springsteen. You know, on a side note, I was thinking about something. I'd give you a chance to brag. I used to ask this question at work and like get to know you forums with lots right. of people. Um, I think deep down mainly I asked it because my answer is so, so bad. Um, <laughs> what was your what was your first concert that you ever attended? Bruce Springsteen, LA Coliseum, 1985, the Born in the USA tour. You and 100,000 people. You know it. Bruce. So was that the moment? where no the moment came before but but then as as the bruce faithful like to call it once you're brucified you never go back so would you like to ask me my first concert i know your first concert is what's your first concert my first concert was richard marks <laughs> so it was it was not fun to have to answer that question in front of uh, groups over dinners. Um, so, what is something that no one or almost no one knows about you? For a long time, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be an actress. Oh wow! I didn't know. Look at the smile on your face. And 
And Tiger Mom wasn't going to allow it. Tiger Mom <laughs> said, no way. Um, so your kid, this is, I can't wait to hear the answer to this question. Your kids are going to be out of the house within a you know two and a half year period. What is your number one priority over the next five years? That, well, the next five years, I would say for the first part of the next five years would be that the kids launch successfully, that they find their passion, like I mentioned before, that they're focused to do it and they have the self-discipline not to stray from it. And honestly, I want to run Boston again. There you go. I, I figured that might be coming. I think I want you to run Boston again. <laughs> I just want you to be able to walk after after you're done. I think that's important. Um, so I get a front row seat to watch your relationship with Amy Cooper. We call her Coop, right? She's a Coop. She's a Coop. Yeah. So um, how often do you talk to Amy? Well, on any given day, it ranges between one and five. Times. Times. And she lives in Arizona. She does. She lives in Scottsdale. You live in Southern California. I love Amy. She's she's a fantastic human being. I love her husband, Steve Cooper, who's a fantastic human being. Um, the main reason I ask this is um, John Stone talked about on a previous episode about, you know, why would you not reach out to your friends? Why would you not reach out to family members? Why would you not mend... Um, less than optimal situations and, and put in that that deliberate effort and i think it's incredible um what's her ringtone bon jovi living on a prayer living on a prayer so my boys and i always hear living on a prayer when when amy calls but um in a world of texting and emailing and social media nonsense i i think it's really really admirable admirable what you and amy do to cultivate your friendship and continue to make it stronger well really i mean she's the sister i never had yeah so i think it stems from that but a lot of people could benefit from making that kind of effort to just drive a friendship deeper and deeper and deeper it's is really cool to watch so um we've had a great journey together is there anything that i haven't covered that you would like to talk about no, you have any uh, harboring secret questions you want to ask? Well, I, I mean, I've asked like a hundred. <laughs> I think. Uh, okay. I, I think. Uh, I think I'm good there. I, you know what I what I would ask is um, if you could you you've kind of tiptoed around this a little bit through different answers, at least from through my lens. If you could ask something of people that are out there listening, or will listen to this down the road, what would you ask of people? This really is a message personal to me for Sam and Casey that this life is your one and only ride. So make it your best and have no regrets. I love it. Okay. Thank you so much, Nikki. My, Thank you. My wife. Um, 
I know I have biases that, that people, you know, my disclosure is you, you are my wife and my, I always joke best friend and you say, no, <laughs> I don't know if I'm a, I don't know if I'm a badass friend. I'm you, just the wife. You're definitely, you're definitely a badass, which is why you're on the show and uh, you are my wife, not necessarily my friend and, and you and I like it that way, but uh, no, I'm incredibly lucky to have found you and you're an amazing mother and an amazing wife and an amazing friend to a lot of people. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.